This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Greetings. This is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. I'd like to welcome you to today's podcast, which will feature a discussion on predicting outcomes for patients in the intensive care unit. We'll focus on two complimentary articles that were published in the October issue of the Annals, and we're fortunate to be joined by actually two colleagues today. The first is Dr. Sarah Hadik from the section of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the West Virginia University School of Medicine. Dr. Hadik is the lead author of a publication entitled Derivation and Validation of a Prognostic Model to Predict Six-Month Mortality in an Intensive Care Unit Population. Welcome, Dr. Hadik. Hi. Happy to be here. Great. And the second is Dr. Michael Detsky, who is the first author of a paper entitled Six-Month Morbidity and Mortality Among ICU Patients Receiving Life-Sustaining Therapy, a Prospective Cohort Study. Dr. Detsky joins us from the Department of Critical Care at the Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, Canada. Welcome to you as well, Dr. Detsky. Thank you, Dr. Tina, for having me. So thanks again to both of you for taking the time to participate uh, in the podcast. So I chose these publications and this topic for today because one of the most difficult challenges faced by intensivists, as well as our patients and their families, is making decisions about goals of care in circumstances where the prediction of the natural history of a critical illness uh, is difficult. So these, uh, these two papers were published, uh, again, in a companion style uh, in the annals, and I thought uh, this would be a great way to, to really address a very important topic. So to start off, I'd like to ask uh, each of the authors to uh, discuss the impetus for and the clinical context for their study, and then to describe their study and summarize its findings and then I'm hoping that we have a, a, a nice interactive discussion um, about the, the complementary nature of their two studies. So let's start with, with you, Sarah, uh, on your paper. So as far as uh, ICU care is concerned, the, the basic reason why we started this study was that the World Federation of Societies of Intensive and Critical Care Medicine, they recommended that research be conducted to assess the benefits of the use of surprise questionnaire in treating ICU patients. Now, by saying so, both ACCM, which is uh, our American Society of Critical Medicine, and American Thoracic Society, they recognize that the palliative care is a key component of ICU quality of care. Dr. Moss, who has been actively involved in the studies pertaining to surprise questionnaire, as you can see, he's the last author on the paper. He uh, belongs to the section of nephrology as well as supportive care. He has already done a few studies, and West Virginia University has been doing has done studies in the past on chronic dialysis patients as well as cancer patients uh, pertaining to surprise questionnaire. So since we were already in it um, from that perspective, so we thought that we should take a part in a study where uh, we can implement implement surprise questionnaire in the ICU setting. But not only that, but actually to find a prognostic model which is both has both things, has subjective as well as objective component because you can't make your decision only on the subjective component of it. So that was the, basically the impetus for us to develop an integrated prognostic model in the ICU patient population for shared decision making with the families and for the timely incorporation of the palliative care into the treatment. So actually, just out of curiosity, where did the surprise question come from? I know you mentioned it, it's been looked at and tested in other patient populations. How did, how did that come to be developed? 
Okay, so going back to the history, so there is a geriatrician by the name of Joanne Lin. So she actually uh, was the daughter of a hematologist oncologist, and then she had a lot of interest in uh, um, end of life care. So she was involved in the Institute of Healthcare Improvement back in 1998, and they had a breakthrough collaboration to improve end of life. So she was one of she was the first one actually who came up with the surprise questionnaire at that time, and then she encouraged a Franciscan Health System, the primary care clinic to look into this. So actually what she did at that time, she just asked the clinician over there that why don't you ask yourself that would you be surprised if a patient die in next one year whenever you come in the morning and look at your clinic schedule. And if you wouldn't be surprised, then and then, then are you, they are appropriate for hospice referral or not. So what they found out afterwards that there was six-fold increase in appropriate hospice referral. There was a few hospital days, there were more deaths outside the hospital and more days in hospice. And there was also the associated higher patient and family satisfaction with that care. So as this was the first time and then later she wrote a uh, paper in JAMA in 2001 and she has written books on it. So I think she was the first one who came with this idea of surprise questionnaire. So as a clinician, what the, thing, the important thing to understand is that we are always in the search of a tool which is very simple, it is feasible and it is effective to make identification of patients with the serious illnesses and, and poor prognosis as a routine and thereby to aid our shared decision-making discussion. And SQ, which is Surprise Questionnaire, which allows clinicians to exercise that skilled intuitive judgment because it is short, it is a simple question and it is also, obviously, it is a skilled intuitive judgment and you cannot completely rely on it and intuitive judgment only will work if you are aware of your surrounding, for example, if you are aware like where you, where the, 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 for example, the ICU setting and also you have learned these irregularities through experiences. This is coming straight out of the, the book which I actually mentioned in my text as well in the discussion Thinking Fast and Slow by Dr. Kenneman that once you know those irregularities and you are aware of the environment, you will be able to make this skilled intuitive judgment and that it can be integrated into the objective measures to improve the accuracy. Obviously, in the past, it has been misunderstood. The surprise question has been misunderstood as a tool to predict death. Actually, it is not really meant to predict death. It, what it is meant to do is to improve your prognostic accuracy because it allows physicians to think in a new way about their patients. Physicians do not need to identify or conclude from their question that the patient is dying. I do not want to know that. The only question I have why I'm doing this is I want that it should, I should have a prompt consideration, something that whether the patient might be dying or it might be living or would, would this patient have a good prognosis or not. And if not, then what I can do to improve the end of life care. Okay, terrific. So with that as a background, then go ahead and describe your study and summarize its findings for us. So in a simple word, I, in, and briefly I would tell you, we conducted a longitudinal prospective cohort study of two patient population which are temporarily split apart and altogether there were 1049 uh, consecutive medical ICU patients. Um, all the patients were in the West Virginia University Hospital which is a tertiary care hospital and for each patient we collected the demographic data. We collected a lot of data actually and, it, and also the Apache score along with TCI index which is the Charleston Comorbidity Index and then uh, intensivist response to surprise questionnaire. What is a surprise questionnaire? I'll ask, like, would I be surprised if this patient died in next six months on admission? And then we check their vital status at six months, which is dead or alive. 
This data was collected between November of 2013 and May of 2015. And we have two cohorts, which I will explain later what those cohorts are. So we have a derivation cohort and a validation cohort of 500 consecutive patients, uh, respectively. And then we studied um, those two patient population and we developed a multivariate logistic regression model. And in that model, we found the three things, like what, so it's, since we have collected so much data, so we found three things, which are CCI, Apache score, and surprise questionnaire. They were the best predictor of uh, vital status at six months, which is dead or alive. And the odds of dying within six months was significantly higher when the SQ was answered no than when it was answered yes. And the C statistics for the derivation and the validation cohort was 0.82 and 0.84 respectively. So to, to put things in perspective, what C statistics is just tells you the power or the strength of a, a prognostic model. Obviously, it's not going to be 100% uh, because when you uh, try to discriminate certain things, um, you lose the specificity, specificity and when you work on that, you lose the sensitivity. So that is always going to be a problem. But just to put things in perspective, the charge 2 score index which helped to determine warfarin therapy, the C statistics is 0.68 to 0.72. The Framingham risk score to determine the lipid therapy, the C statistics in that was 0.6 to 0.8. And the Timmy's risk score, which we have been used in the past, but may not be used simply, have determined invasive therapy for unstable angina, the C statistics was 0.65. So in medical literature, we have used those, val uh, um, those risk score systems so avidly. So that makes that some, something which has a C statistics of 0.8 and above. Uh, make it a stronger uh, prediction of uh, that uh, model. So our integrated prognostic model, which includes surprise questionnaires, so it has a strong discrimination and uh, calibration to predict six months mortality in medical ICU patients. And uh, because, as I said, the C statistics is well above 0.8. And this model can aid clinicians in identifying ICU patients who may benefit from integration of palliative care into their treatment early, of the, early in the course. So, um, you know, I think most of our audience is familiar with the Apache score, um, and but it, I think it'd be helpful if you describe the Charleston comorbidity index uh, for those of us who are not quite as familiar with this objective tool. Okay, so Charleston comorbidity index uh, came from uh, Mary Charleston in 1980s. Uh, she uh, she came up with and developed as a prognostic index to predict one-year mortality, and she did that on the patient. Uh, this is coming from New York. I think she was from Cornell. And she, this was done to, uh, for the patient who were admitted to the medical service for an acute care hospital. And she assigned empirically derived weight to 19 investigator defined clinically important conditions. So they are in the part of the calculator. And each condition was assigned a score of 1, 2, 3, or 6, depending on the risk of dying associated with this condition. And the higher scores indicating more comorbid illness, obviously. So the higher the score was, you have a higher more comorbid illness. So the method of classifying comorbidity provided, provides a simple, readily applicable, and valid method of estimating the risk of death from comorbid disease for use in longitudinal studies. I think this is one of the, um, the index which has been very widely used in the longitudinal studies. Okay. So another question I want to ask you just about the methodology, and I think I'm going to ask Dr. Detsky to address this in his, uh, when we get to his study as well. Is, so why, why was a surprise question recorded within within the first 12 to 24 hours of admission. Do, do you think the accuracy uh, would have been even more improved if you asked the question a little bit later in the ICU course where you get a little bit more of a sense of 
what the trajectory of the illness is going to be? Is there a specific reason why that early measure is chosen? Uh, I don't have, like, uh, the only reason I would say is that first 24-hour facility is early intervention for goal of care conversation to ensure treatment is consistent with patient's wishes. I think the earlier you make sure that this, this is not only for end-of-life care, it is also for goal clarification too, just to make sure that you are doing, which is actually consistent with what patients wanted. And average MICU length of stay is usually three to four days, so that's why this tool was used earlier in the course of their MIQ stay. The aim was to identify the patient with grave prognosis early um, for effective dialogue with the patient and family. Terrific. So, so your study looked at two objective measures of predicting outcome and correlated with, with an experienced and intuitive measure um, that was pretty simple and pretty straightforward, which is the surprise question. And that combination appeared to, to have a really uh, good um, prognostic value um, over that six-month period. So uh, we'll come back and, and, and ask a few more uh, questions specifically about your study and its applicability, but I wanted to turn it over now to, uh, to Dr. Detsky. So, uh, so Michael, uh, again, talk about the impetus for and the clinical context of your study uh, and then describe it and summarize its findings. And, and I wanted to just add that you and your colleagues uh, published a paper in JAMA earlier this year about the discriminative accuracy of both physician and nurse predictions for ICU, ICU, ICU outcomes. So can you comment on that, first of all, and how it ties into the current study? And maybe, you, you know, you can tie it into to Sarah's um, results as well. So, so take it away. Sure. Um, well, I think uh, the story starts back when I was uh, planning to come down to the University of Pennsylvania to do a master's degree. And my supervisor, uh, Scott Halpern, had sort of said, what kind of stuff are you interested in looking at? And I kind of reflected on some of my clinical experiences as a uh, critical care trainee in Toronto. And one thing I was interested in was understanding um, how accurate physicians and nurses were in predicting sort of not just mortality, but other sort more functional patient-centered outcomes, such as cognition and physical function, because we were having these conversations on a daily basis, but really having no feedback to understand whether what I was telling these families was correct or not. And so that was really where this all came from. And so, uh, Dr. Tino, you might remember you were actually one of the participants in the in this study where we actually enrolled physicians, nurses, and the patients and their surrogates to ask um, what uh, do you think the patient will be like six months later? And we asked them to answer a bunch of specific uh, patient-centered outcomes, including at six months, would they be alive? Would they be able to toilet on their own? Would they be able to walk up 10 stairs on their own? Would their cognition be normal based on a uh, question from the health utility index? Um, and, and then we followed up with patients at six months to determine whether those predictions done uh, early in the patient's ICU stay um, which was three to six days, we could, we were able to determine whether these predictions were correct or not, and then and then look at the discriminative accuracy of these predictions in aggregate for the physicians and nurses. And we collected a lot of data for this project, including what people were like at baseline in terms of the questions that physicians and nurses were asked to predict, and then what they were actually like at six months. And so it created an opportunity to answer the primary question, which you already um, uh, described, which was that JAMA paper, 
but also this opportunity to look at, well, let's describe this cohort in a bit of detail and also try and answer, are there any patient characteristics that are uh, collected early in an ICU admission that might be predictive of whether the patient is going to be uh, not at their baseline six months later because we're collecting that data anyway for the, for the discriminative accuracy question. And so this paper really is meant to complement the JAMA paper to kind of give the reader a sense of um, a bit more detail about the patient cohort. And also there's, as you described, a bit of a, a small discriminative uh, model in, in this Annals of ATS paper as well that looked at some patient characteristics that were collected within the first 24 hours and whether they were predictive of whether the patient would return to baseline or not at six months. So go ahead. So actually, before we get into the, the details, so how good are physicians and nurses at predicting outcomes uh, for ICU patients? Yeah, I think like everything in clinical medicine, the, the answer is it depends. Um, and the three major implications in terms of what it depends on are, um, A, what is the physician or nurse predicting? So certain outcomes like six-month mortality were predicted more accurately than cognition, for example. Um, the second issue that's important is whether the physician or nurse has confidence in their prediction. So physicians more so than nurses, but also nurses, when they were more confident in their predictions, they were more likely to be accurate. And the third um, element that is uh, important is um, the concordance of the physician and nurse making the prediction. So when the physicians and nurses had the same uh, prediction, they were and they were both confident, they were actually very accurate at predicting these outcomes. Um, so, but the challenge is that the, you know, they were confident about half the time and they were confident and agreed a little bit less than that. So, um, you know, when you take all comers, I mean, some things were not predicted particularly accurately, especially cognition, but things like toileting and uh, being home at six months uh, and being alive at six months were predicted fairly accurately. Thanks. So, so go ahead, uh, and why don't you talk about, obviously, your, your study, um, some of the methods that you used, and, and then some of the key outcomes that you reported in the paper. Sure. So we, um, we again, it was, this was a prospective cohort study really done to um, collect the data for the primary question looking at the physician and nurse's discriminative accuracy. And what we did was we built a model looking at um, some patient characteristics that would be available within the first 24 hours um, and uh, used uh, a regression model to try and put together different variables and see how well they could predict. And so similar to what, uh, what Sarah was describing, we have a, a handful of models that ended up, sorry, a handful of uh, variables that made it into the model. Some of them are actually pretty similar to what, what she used. So we used Apache 3, um, certain comorbidities. So instead of taking it from the Charleston comorbidity index, we parse them out a bit. So history of malignancy, a neurologic disease or liver disease, had a prior transplant. Um, the older they were, the worse they did. Medical patients tended to do worse than surgical patients. Um, and, uh, and the older patients tended to do worse as well. And so we created this model. Um, and uh, again, this was in 303 patients. Uh, full um, full uh, complement of variables was available in 293 of the patients. Um, and what we found was that this did a reasonable job of predicting. Um, and we had a, a C statistic of 0.778, uh, 
um, and the calibration of the model was quite good uh, with a p-value of 0.36. So um, this, you know, it, again, I we talked about this earlier, I don't know that this model would be ready for prime time per se, but I think it just gives some food for thought for clinicians to say, you know, these are pretty easily collected variables. Let me look at what this patient has or doesn't have of these and to try and recognize how high the risk of not returning to baseline at six months is. And I, and I think that's where we differ a bit with Sarah's model is that we didn't look just specifically at mortality, but mortality and not being back at baseline. So you could still be alive, but not return to home or having a, a decline in one of the um, degrees of function that we measured as part of the prediction question that we were describing earlier. So you guys looked at patients who had been in the ICU for at least three days, but but the, predicting, the, the predictive model started on the first ICU day. So I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Sarah. So, so the first day versus later day assessment when more data on the clinical trajectory becomes available, how did you, how did you pick early measurements like that? Yeah. So some of this, I think, was more related to um, issues with uh, collecting variables at different time points and how those would interact with each other. We kind of discussed as a group that one of the nice things was, again, the Apache 3 probably wouldn't be available till the end of that first day. Um, but the thought being that you might not necessarily collect all this stuff right away and it sort of takes a bit of time. Um, so, and again, similar to what Sarah described, I mean, you're going to have that family meeting maybe on the third day all that data is available for you within 24 hours and could sort of be collected and, 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 and delivered to you to kind of look and reflect and say, okay, this patient has a pretty high risk of not returning to baseline at six months or not. Um, but it's, I mean, there's limitations to that too. I mean, I, I, I see the downside of not having the uh, benefit of trajectory, which is actually what we were interested in um, with the discriminative accuracy question for physicians and nurses, because we understood that we wanted the patient to be in the ICU for a certain number of days before asking people to predict because it, as you describe, it gives you that sense of, you know, what path the patient's on. Have they started to rally and they're improving and they're going to be extubated shortly and, they're, you know, they're off pressors and organ dysfunction has resolved? Or, in fact, are things actually getting worse and, uh, you know, you're really worried about what their baseline health was like and, and it looks like they're, they're actually going to be... Um, unlikely to really have a good recovery and and there's I think there's no question the longer people are in the ICU the worse they do and the longer they're in the ICU the more clear that becomes so um, we wanted to kind of capture people who would also do probably well recognizing that they were already kind of recovering by the time this happened and sort of capture them days three to six although half of our patients were collected on day three and I think another quarter were collected on day four. So most of them were collected sort of day three to four of their ICU stay. So, you know, obviously you looked at a sick group of patients. It looks like uh, about half of your patients survived the six months. But interestingly, about 83% returned home, a high percentage were able to toilet, 70% uh, were able to ambulate 10 stairs. Um, but only 31% of patients returned to their baseline status. Were you surprised that two, of three of your, two out of three of your patients in the study didn't return to baseline function? Yeah, I really was. I mean, we, you know, we, it, it turned out to be a sick population, but if you look at our inclusion criteria, I didn't think they would do as poorly as they did. I mean, these were, so our inclusion criteria, they had to be in the ICU on day three to six. 
They had to receive life support, which was defined as mechanical ventilation for at least 48 consecutive hours or vasoactive infusions for 24 hours. And, you know, I mean, we see a lot of patients like that, and I don't necessarily think that half of them are going to be dead at six months. Um, but in this cohort, that actually happened to be the case. I think there's some bad news and some good news from the data. The bad news is, you know, if you met that inclusion criteria, you were at pretty high risk to be dead at six months. Um, but, but if you did survive, you had a pretty good chance of being, as you mentioned, back at home and have uh, normal ambulation, toileting, and cognition. Cognition less, uh, normal cognition was less frequent than the normal physical function that I described. So, um, you know, the fact that a third of people were back to baseline, I think most of that was driven by the fact that um, most of the people who weren't at baseline actually had died in between ICU admission and six months. Six months. Interesting. Interesting. Thanks for that, Dr. Detsky. So, so Dr. Hadid, coming back to you, um, so do you, and if so, how would you envision your model being used at the bedside in clinical practice? So many clinicians don't routinely use Apache scores or the CCI at present. So how would you, how would you envision this happening both at academic ICUs uh, and uh, at non-academic centers? Sure. Um, yes, it's a very, very important question because from a practical viewpoint, uh, simple models are more likely to be readily incorporated in clinical practice as compared to more complex ones because that causes a lot of disruption in daily rounds or, or actually for the time when we are so busy. So this model has only three variables, which is Apache, uh, CCI, and Surprise Questionnaire. And since majority of the hospitals have now moved to electronic medical record, Apache and uh, CCI can be automatically calculated in the patient's chart. Actually, Epic has built-in calculators to calculate Apache 4 uh, and, and CCI. Um, I, we did not have that uh, uh, opportunity when we were conducting the study. We did not know any of that. So because we were manually calculating it, but now we have it automatically in our system. So if a clinician want, it would be readily available to them on every patient's chart. And this model can be incorporated in the electronic medical record. And after just answering yes and no to your surprise question, it will identify the patient with increased risk of mortality at six months. Okay. So one of the things that you, you highlighted in your paper is that, that this sort of integrated prognostic model, its practical implication would be to really involve the palliative care, our palliative care uh, colleagues. So, so sort of take out a crystal ball, and if this model um, is, in fact, utilized across ICUs, how would, what would the role of the palliative care program be, and, and how early would you involve them? How does this have, you know, clinical and bedside applications in, in the real world? So as far as palliative care program is concerned, just like any other teaching hospitals in the United States, almost I think 80 to 85 percent of the hospital have palliative care program, which is so, so RZ has, we have also have a well-established palliative care program. So identification of patients with worse prognosis through this model uh, may result in involvement of palliative care services for goal of care uh, discussion. Not necessarily palliative care should, be, should only be used to involve in the end of life care, but also for the goal of care discussion, that how would they like to go out of the ICU, would they like to fill in the post form, who will be their medical power of attorney. I, obviously, if the patient and the family and the um, physician themselves are able to carry out that conversation and come to a conclusion, that's fantastic, but if they can, then they can actually identify patients who, are at, who have a grave prognosis and then involve the palliative care early in the course to discuss uh, any other issues related to the outcome. Great, thank you. 
Dr. Detsky, so uh, should we now be creating long-term functional predictions um, into ICU goals of care discussions? Are we ready? Yeah, I mean, I think the truth is we're probably, many of us are already doing that. I mean, Doug, work, Doug White has done some work on this topic where they audio recorded family conferences, and a lot of the discussion was actually around function and quality of life in the future and not necessarily mortality. And so I think that's why I became interested in this. I think there's a lot of opportunity to explore how we can do better at this. Um, and, you know, I think it just comes back to first principles of sort of understanding what are patients' values and preferences. Different patients are going to have um, different goals and trying to understand whether those goals can be met or not with uh, providing aggressive life-sustaining therapy and ensure that we're not putting people through, um, you know, a lot of burdensome care and um, uh, and really undignified care when there's really a low chance of getting back to what the patient's goals are. But I think the problem is that's, and, and not the problem, but one of the, the nice challenges is that we are constantly having to adjust what the goals are because the goals for the patients are going to be different. So I think we have to be very um, cognizant to get a good values and preferences history from a uh, patient or often the surrogate describing it on the patient's behalf if they're not able to speak for themselves. And then using that information to sort of say, well, based on what I know about their values and preferences, I don't think it's realistic that they're going to be, you know, back at home or, or doing the activities they enjoyed before coming in. I mean, you know, I can reflect on my own personal experiences. My grandmother died a few years ago and she was 93 and as my dad likes to say she managed three homes and 15 major appliances and um before she died i mean she she was again she was doing quite well but she made it very clear like anything less than what she was living at that time was unacceptable and and you know unfortunately for us but fortunately for her it was a very sudden event that caused her to die and and we were lucky in the sense because we didn't have to put her through um, you know, a prolonged critical illness. But I knew from talking to her that living anything less than she was living at the time before she died was not acceptable. So, um, but these are very challenging conversations to have. And unfortunately, a lot of times, you know, we, we don't have these conversations with our family members. And I think that's one area where my mentor, Scott Halpern and his group, they're really looking to sort of move that conversation forward in, in the United States. Yeah, and I think obviously th these are very important questions for us, and, and importantly for our patients. And and you know, it's 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 really nice and appropriate to see that that other factors, and mortality obviously is an important outcome, but quality of life and functional ability uh, is is critical to all of us. And and an incorporation with data into that conversation would 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 be very very helpful. So. Uh, so, Michael, are there are there next steps being planned um, along these lines by you and by your colleagues um, who participated in this trial? Are there are there um, more sophisticated models, or are there other uh, other sort of next steps to validate these being planned? Sure. So, I think for you know the the paper in Annals ATS, I think for me the next step would be to try and um, do an external validation with a separate data set and there's been conversations with different investigators who actually have data sets that have the same variables that would probably allow us to do that so i think that would be nice just to confirm that what we found in our cohort would be also found in others but i think the other major piece i'm interested in is understanding you know how well uh, intensivists predict outcomes relative to their um, other colleagues who are sort of 
primary service physicians such as oncologists and surgeons and trying to understand when there's discordance, does this have an adverse impact on the patients or their families? And so those are the next steps where I'm planning personally and um, you know, hopefully in the not too distant future, some of those questions will be answered. And uh, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of opportunity here to, to answer some important questions. And I think we're just sort of starting to scratch the surface, but there's been a lot of great work done even before we were, we were doing this. I mean, um, you know, one of the things that I was reflecting on when looking at some of the uh, discussion points for this podcast was um, how do we kind of as a field move this forward and I think you know there's a group at Johns Hopkins led by Dale Needham where they're looking at uh, and I'll if anyone's interested I'll let them know there's this website called uh, it's www.improvelto.com and it's basically a one-stop shop that looks at all the sort of um, not the morbidity outcomes um, that and different objective measures of these different morbidity outcomes so that we as a group can make sure we're testing the same thing so you can compare outcomes between studies and I think that's it's so important that we really make sure we're kind of all relatively on the same page looking at, at these these types of problems so that we can kind of compare between each other. Terrific thanks. Uh, Dr. Hadik how about on your side how about on your study what are their what are the next steps uh, that you and your colleagues uh, are, are planning to embark on? Sure. So I will add to uh, the Michael stuff that, yes, he's absolutely right. The, the, it's not only about the mortality, but also the quality of life, which is very, very um, important to certain patients. I don't want to be offending to someone, but if, if you ask somebody that, it's a very simple question, would you like to be in a nursing home? And uh, they would exactly... Like, they would say, no, I, would I, don't, I want everything to be done, but when you ask that, would you like to be in a nursing home, the answer would be no. I would never want to be in a nursing home. Similarly, they're like, I do not want to be on a breathing machine. A majority of them, yes, we want CPR, but I think the marketing for the breathing machine has not been done as effectively as the CPR. So they will never say that. So yeah, quality is also important. I think they never interpret when we are um, telling them about their outcomes. So it's very important that whenever we are talking with this is what we teach our fellows as well over here that we tell it in a simple word and explain it explicitly like properly in a layman term that what are they going to expect even if they survive this and they go home, what are the expectations? They don't come back and say you never told us that he will be have a trach and a peg in a nursing home. So yeah, that was a very important aspect of it that it's not only about the mortality, we also have to look into the other aspects of the quality of life. Now, going forward with this thing, yes, uh, we would like to use this uh, validated uh, integrated model and uh, we have planned a quality improvement project, actually it has already been submitted to determine if it's used uh, to improve the outcomes. Or the outcomes we have thought about is to decrease the utilization, increase patient and family satisfaction and reduce the cost of care for medical ICU patients with a poor prognosis. And we were also planning to identify additional variables because you know, the fine tuning is needed in this model, but clearly this study supports that SQ to be used in the ICU as a predictor of long-term mortality as one of the factor with more comprehensive models so you can improve the positive predictive value of it. So that's what we are planning to do. So identify additional variables which are not too hard to calculate or uh, extremely time-consuming and with good uh, calibration and discrimination. Thank you. So um, what I'd like you to do uh, first, uh, Sarah, and then Michael, can you just summarize maybe one or two of the key take-home points about your studies uh, that you think would be most valuable for uh, our intensivist colleagues? 
So one key point I would tell that the prognostic information is invaluable to patients, families, and clinicians, especially in the ICU setting when we are making these grave decisions on a daily basis. So unfortunately, if we use our intuition exclusively, it is uh, not going to be as uh, prognostic model have shown that they are not neither our intensive subjective prediction nor objective prognostic model alone are sufficient to inform end of life care making decisions in the in the medical ICU. And then on the other hand, it has shown that if you add your clinical intuition to accurate objective measure, it actually improves the prognostic estimate. So that's why what we need to do is we have to use the integrated model where you have a subjective as well as the objective and object subjective is your surprise questionnaire which you ask yourself a question would I be surprised if this patient died within next six months and then which offers a longer range of subjective prognosis than a survival to the hospital discharge and in addition we look at the objective measures like Apache score or CCI and then make a decision and discuss with the family and obviously fine-tuning is needed to this model but uh, my take-home point is that whenever you're having a discussion with the family through this study I only only thing we have proposed is both subjective and objective measures should be taken into account uh, uh, for the goal clarification on end-of-life care thank you Michael how about you what are your one or two take-home points for our clinicians yeah so um, I think uh, one of the important points of this is that even though um, you know, these patient meet for our study met relatively, um, what I would say, non-severe inclusion criteria, um, i.e., you know, in, you're in an ICU for three days and you're on a, either a vent for 48 hours and or on pressors for 24 hours, that those patients have a very high likelihood of dying or not returning to baseline. Um, and, but if you do survive, there's, you know, most of the not return to baseline is because they died and less has to do with not returning to uh, having normal cognition, ambulation, or toileting. So, I mean, I, it's just recognizing that these patients are at very high risk. Um, and similar to Sarah's study, we, we have some um, relatively easy to collect patient variables that can be collected in the first 24 hours that do a nice job of alerting the clinician to know that this patient has a pretty high risk of not returning to baseline at six months. I, I would say, you know, the other than the Apache 3, which is a, is a bit burdensome to collect. So if you have an EHR that automatically collects that data, then great, because the other stuff is pretty easy to collect. And you can put that together to sort of understand, you know, this looks pretty bad for this patient. Um, we should maybe sit down with the family. I mean, I, I, am, I, I tell the trainees, like sometimes the most important intervention we do is a, is a good family meeting. And so I, I think we're, I'm very sensitive to it. I mean, obviously I'm studying it at the same time, but I think it's important to recognize that all our patients are at pretty high risk to be uh, in rough shape six months later. And, and maybe some of this data will, you know, can be given to the family to sort of suggest, you know, you should be aware that this is, this, this looks like it's a pretty bad situation. Good. Thank you. Uh, any other comments from either Dr. Hadik or Dr. Detsky? Any other final comments that either of you would like to make? No, I'm just appreciative for having us both on. I think, uh, I mean, Sarah's group's done some great work, and uh, it's really nice to, to be able to speak together on this topic. And uh, hopefully um, in the future, you know, the, we'll be having conversations highlighting much more data, which will help sort of support some of these conversations uh, that we're having on a day-to-day -day basis with the patients. Thank you very much for having me. It was nice uh, discussing this thing, and I think hopefully in the future, I, I 
we come back with the more information which would be easier and for the patients families and also for the clinicians well listen i'd like to thank both of you for joining the podcast today and engaging in really a terrifically interesting and i think quite uh, important conversation and i hope that uh, you have found today's discussion as informative and as helpful to your clinical practice uh, as i have and until next time this is dr greg tino podcast editor for the annals of the ats and thank you for joining in 